I have the privilege of opening God's Word together with you this morning, which is, which is a great privilege that we have every week. Today, we're going to be opening up to the book of Mark, as we have for the last nine months or so. And today, we'll be starting in chapter 11 and then taking a brief foray into chapter 12. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verse 12. We'll be reading through, 12, through 33, and then we're going to read two verses in chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. The Gospel of Mark is about answering the question, who is Jesus? And we, we've seen that question answered and, and blossom out to see the full identity of who, who he is. Yet there's still misunderstanding about who he is and the nature of, of his authority among those who have encountered Jesus. And, and there is still room for, for us, no doubt, to come to a greater and more accurate understanding of who Jesus is and the implications that has for every moment of our lives. So with that, would you look down with me, beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, let's read God's Word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, he being Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whatever Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking into the temple, 
the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, go to chapter 12, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, this is the same day, just, just probably a few minutes later, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remove any obstacle to faith this morning, any obstacle to fruitfulness, any obstacle to hearing. And I pray this with, with hopeful expectation that your spirit would do what we ask. Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, this text is a doozy, isn't it? You read this text, this series of stories, and you go, what? what? What in the world? What are we to do with this? Jesus curses a fig tree and, and, and then exhibits anger and aggression that seem to be completely out of character with the Jesus that we have come to know so far in the Gospel of Mark. But then later he passes the, this cursed fig tree and it's withered away and so he proceeds to give instructions on prayer and forgiveness. What? And then, and then there are two separate questions about his authority, neither of which he seems to answer. So what is going on? Commentator Walter Wessel says, this is one of the most difficult series of stories in the Gospels. Many modern commentators would just assume it were not here at all. Today, my friend, like every passage in Mark so far, we have the opportunity to learn of the glorious identity of Jesus Christ, and we will do that. But today is also, oh goodness, today is also a tremendous opportunity to learn and be reminded of the importance of reading your Bibles in context. Scholar D.A. Carson famously said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. If you don't understand what, that just, what I just said right there, he essentially said, 
a text taken out of its context can essentially be, be used to say anything you want it to say. Which is, where, which is how verses in these series of stories are used oftentimes. A biblical text without its context can be a dangerous thing. And this is very true of today's passage. Several verses within today's passage have at best been understood in a way that totally misses the mark of what the author of Mark's gospel is trying to get at. And at worst, some of these verses have been used to teach an altogether different gospel. D.A. Carson, in another place, said, good readers, good readers of the Bible, follow the flow of texts. For example, while it is always worth meditating on individual words and phrases, the most important factor in determining what a word or passage means is how the author uses that word or passage within its specific context. In your pursuit to understand the Bible, context is king. Context is king. So if we submit to the kingship of context in this passage, the point that we'll eventually arrive at today is this. It's that Jesus' authority is good news to those who submit to it. That's the point of everything together today. And you think, well, how do we arrive there? Context. All of these strange and seemingly unrelated verses together teach us that Jesus came with the authority of God himself and that there is no authority that is greater than Jesus' authority and there's no authority that's better than Jesus' authority. And it is good to submit our lives and decisions and eternity to that very authority. So when I say that we get there by context, let me explain what I mean. The, the, the latter material in, in this passage interprets the earlier material in this passage. L like, a, like a Russian doll. You know those, those Russian dolls, you open one up and there's one more in there and then one more and then one more and one more. Sort of like that. The, the, the latter material clarifies the earlier material. Here's what I mean. And we're going to walk through this. And so... This would be a good sermon to take notes on if you're, if you're not taking notes. We're going to start with verses 15 through 19, which, which is the passage that's traditionally been known as the cleansing of the temple. But these verses are, are sandwiched by two scenes with a fig tree. And listen, we've learned already, Mark loves sandwiches. Mark and sandwiches are all over his gospel. And more often than not, the outside of the sandwich clarifies and interprets the inside of the sandwich. So, so this fig tree, these two fig tree scenes interpret what's actually going on with the cleansing of the temple. And then the two conversations about Jesus' authority in verses 16 through 33, and then those few verses in chapter 12, they clarify the entire passage. But if we read them out of context, they don't make sense. Or they can be used as dangerous tools to mean something altogether different than what Mark intended them to be. But if we read them in context and we understand them, we will be left 
being glad Christians about the authority of Jesus. So here we go. Three, three points today to sort of guide our time together. And, and they're those sort of Russian doll points. The first being the cleansing of the temple. Second point, the fig tree makes sense of the cleansing of the temple. Third point, Jesus' authority makes sense of the whole passage. Okay? We tracking together? And this is, this is a long passage, a lot of text, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and be brief and hopefully brilliant, but can't promise that, but I'm going to try to be brief, but, but track with me. This is worth following together through. I believe the Lord has something profound and important to teach us today, and each one of us in our own right. So let's start with the first point, the cleansing of the temple. So we're going to bypass verses 12 through 14, but just for a moment. And if you recall, last week, Jesus and his disciples, they have finally arrived at Jerusalem, the place that they've been on their way to since chapter 8, verse 27. They finally arrive there. And then they arrive at the temple, which is the heart of Jerusalem. And not just the heart of the city of Jerusalem, it is the heart of Jewish religion. This, this is the the center of the Jewish world in every way that you could possibly define it. And Jesus finally gets there in, in verse 11 last week, and he looks around, and then he leaves. This crazy anticlimax. But the next day, after spending the night in the, the town of Bethany, he and his disciples, they, they come back. Now, you have to understand that the Jewish temple was was magnificent. It was unlike any other ancient building in the ancient world. If your conception of the Jewish temple is, is something like this building, that Jesus walked into a building like this, you would be completely missing it. Uh, commentator William Lane, he says that the temple was one of the most magnificent structures in the world at that time. As a total complex, it was the largest site in the ancient world. The total platform was about 35 acres. The perimeter of the temple contained a covered portico built of huge columns, 35 feet tall, whose base was so large that it took three men holding hands to encircle one. The temple was huge and magnificent. And this was Passover week. So there are three times the, the amount of prayer for the Jews, but house of prayer for the nations. The court of the Gentiles was the one place where non-Jewish people could come to pray and seek God's presence. And what people had done with it is they'd made it into an open marketplace. There were vendors there selling animals. These animals there were there to be purchased for the sake of sacrifice, for the, the atonement of people's sins. There, there were people selling pigeons because pigeons were what poor people bought when they couldn't afford larger mammals to sacrifice, and they would charge them ex exorbitant rates. There were money changers there to exchange currency for foreigners because foreigners had to use the, the local currency in order to purchase these animals for sacrifice. So those coming to seek atonement for their sins from God had to enter into this, this outer court 
and, and make transactions in order to gain entrance. Further, verse 16, he says he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What does he mean there? At that point in time, people were using the temple complex, mind you, because the, the, the temple was up on the top of a hill, they were using it as a thoroughfare, as a shortcut from one side of the city to the other. Instead of going around, which they should have done, they were using the temple itself as a shortcut from one city or one side of the city to the other. So picture this. Not only has this place become a marketplace, it's become a thoroughfare. How is anyone supposed to or expected to be able to pray in that kind of context? He was horrified when he saw what the temple had become. And the religious leaders should have put a stop to this long ago. This was a failure on their part. And once again, Jesus proves just what kind of a leader he is, just what kind of Messiah he is, a Messiah that that completely bucks the expectation. Many, if not most, would have expected Jesus to come and clear the temple of Gentiles. Instead, he comes in and he clears it for the Gentiles. Nobody expected that. Nobody expected that. Commentator James Edwards says that this would have been very meaningful to Mark's original readers because Mark's original readers were Gentiles. You and I are also Gentiles. You and I should see Jesus' love for us in his anger at the charade that the temple had become. Jesus takes our worship of God seriously. But the religious leaders, look at verse 18, they did not see Jesus' love in this act. Quite the opposite. His actions prompted fear in their hearts. So, verse 18, they were seeking a way to destroy him. Now, mind you, we are so close to the cross here. And author Edwin Heiberg says that that from the human point of view, it was the cleansing of the temple that more than any other act precipitated Jesus' death. Because he's now at Jerusalem. And the leaders are going, we have to get rid of him. And not just get him away. We need to destroy him. Now listen, Jesus, Jesus was justified in his anger. And Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, they give support for Jesus' righteous anger. But listen, listen. Many have made this text a proof text about how and when we should express righteous anger. But that's not the primary purpose of this text. The primary purpose of this text is also not to to critique megachurches or to give an argument for why you shouldn't have a coffee shop in a lobby of your church. But maybe you shouldn't, I don't know. But that's not the point of this 
text. What is the primary point of this text? How do we find out what the primary point of this text is? Through context. So let's move to the second point. The second point being the fig tree makes sense of the cleansing of the temple. Look now back to verse 12 of chapter 11. Backtrack a few hours and a few verses. Jesus and the twelve are now headed back to Jerusalem from Bethany, and Jesus is hungry. Remember, he was fully God and fully man, and he got hungry. And experiencing rumbling in his stomach, he looks in the distance and he sees a fig tree in leaf, and he expects from a distance that there would be figs on this tree, and so he goes to it. But upon closer inspection, he discovers that there is no fruit, just leaves. There is nothing on the tree but leaves. And then look at verse 14. Loud enough so the disciples can hear it. Mind you, Jesus is always teaching. He's always teaching. He curses the fig tree and he says, may no one ever eat from you again. Now, fast forward to the end of the sandwich. Look at verse 20. A day has now passed since Jesus cleansed the temple. They've presumably spent another night in the town of Bethany, and they're heading back up to the Temple Mount, and they pass by the same fig tree, except this time it's withered all the way down to its root, which means what? It's dead. So what is going on with this fig tree? Is Jesus an an anti-environmentalist? Does he just get angry at plants on a regular basis? What is going on? Biblically, the fig tree is a symbol for Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 24, the prophet Jeremiah uses very similarly a fig tree to pronounce judgment on Judah. When the kingdom was split in two, God pronounced judgment on Judah through this symbol of a fig tree. So this harkens back to that. And listen, in this case, this tree from a distance is apparently fruitful, right? But upon closer inspection is barren. This tree is a symbol of the temple, which has an appearance of fruitfulness. But upon closer inspection is a den of thieves. From a distance, the temple is impressive, but upon closer inspection, inspection, there is no fruit. The picture of the same fig tree, dead and withered, is a prophetic picture of the impending future of the temple. C.J. Mahaney says, this wasn't actually the cleansing of the temple. This was the dissolution of the temple. The story of the fig tree teaches us that Jesus was declaring the conclusion of the temple as a means of revealing and accessing God. This wasn't the cleansing of the temple. It was the pronounced end of the temple. That's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, that is fruitless. Therefore, it is dead. Therefore, it is dead. 
It has run its course. I have not come to change that. I've come to declare that it's done. Passing by this fig tree, Peter looks at it and he says, hey, hey Jesus, that's the, that's, that's the same fig tree you cursed yesterday and it's dead. What's going on? Now, look, look down. Isn't Jesus' reply curious? Verse 22. Have faith in God. Peter says, hey, look, the fig tree's dead. Jesus says, have faith in God. How, what? What? What a curious and unexpected reply. What does he mean? Well, again, context tells us. He has just demonstrated the end of the temple where Jewish faith used to be directed, and now he's directing their attention to something new. Again, C.J. Mahaney says, there is now a new center of Judaism. Have faith in God means there is a new center, and you are looking at it. Jesus is the new center of the purpose of God. The organizing center of a true relationship with God is no longer the temple, but is now Jesus Christ. Reconciliation with God is now in and through Him. One now has access to God through Him. He is now the center of revelation and redemption. Have faith in God, not the temple. Is that not profound? what Jesus is declaring. He's saying to his disciples, God is now in your midst. I am now the way of accessing God. Believe in me. And then in verses 27, or 23 through 25, he, he, he then waxes practical about prayer and forgiveness. Again, Why? Because these describe the implications of having faith in Him. He says, have faith in God. Pray and forgive. This is what true fruitfulness looks like. In contrast to the fig tree and the temple, which bear no fruit, He says, have faith in Me and bear fruit. He says, if you have faith in Me, you will bear fruit and you will not be like the fig tree of the temple. They describe what true fruitfulness looks like. So let's look at these two individually. He starts with prayer. He says, truly, whatever I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it'll be yours. Prayer Prayer itself is the fruit of genuine conversion. Prayer is fruit. Think about that for a second. Prayer is the result of saving faith. If you have faith in God, you will not be barren. You will be fruitful in prayer. You will not look like the fig tree or the temple. And Jesus uses hyperbole here to describe us. What? What is the mountain that prayer can move? Is that just like anything you want to move? As you can make it say if it's taken out of context? No. That's any barrier to fruitfulness. Those mountains 
Mountains tend to be barriers to a destination over on the other side of the mountain. So Jesus is saying, whatever obstacle to fruitfulness lays before you, ask. Talk about a passage that has been misinterpreted and to be made about personal prosperity. Whatever you ask, it'll be given to you. Name it and claim it. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. At all. This is about the grand purpose of God centered in Christ. Jesus is saying, trust in me as the center of God's plan. And as you trust in what I've called you to, pray. And pray with expectation that I will bear fruit in you. And that I will remove the obstacles to fruitfulness in your life. He who is faithful will surely do it. Listen, prayer is both the fruit and the means of producing fruit. Prayer is central to the Christian life. You want to see more fruitfulness in your Christian life? Pray. Because prayer is the outworking of the salvation that has already been worked in in you through Christ, but it's also the means of producing further fruits that God uses. In a small group recently, Angie Cunningham recently very wisely said, prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. Prayer is one of the greatest and most central forms of ministry that we can have to and for one another. Further, Jesus Jesus says, not only pray, but when you pray, forgive. That's the second form of true fruitfulness that he identifies. Those who are aware that they've been forgiven by grace will be forgiving people. That's the point Jesus is making here. And listen, how relevant and timely is this instruction to the disciples who have just spent miles and miles and days and days on the road arguing with one another and being offended at one another about this argument of who is the greatest among them? Now Jesus says, whenever you pray, forgive. If anyone has an offense against you, forgive. If you have an offense against anyone, go and seek reconciliation. Uh, This is central to fruitfulness in the Christian life. And this is no less relevant for us than it was for the disciples as we live life together in the local church. Listen, all those we love and serve in the context of the local church will sin against us and offend us. There's no doubt about that. One of the reasons people tend to want to live anonymously within larger churches is because they don't want to encounter that. I'd rather have no relationship at all than risk being sinned against. Oh, but this is a risk worth taking because we have the gospel. Because we have faith in God who's come to reconcile us to God through the forgiveness of sins by the blood of His cross. This is one of the highest practical priorities I have for, for this church. As, as a pastor, there are two things I want to constantly remind us of and, and remind us to, to keep the forefront of our minds and prepare us for what might come in the future. One of those is preparing us how to suffer well, because all of us will suffer. The other one is preparing us to bear offense from one another, because it's going to happen. Life together is not one unending spiritual high. 
It will be after Jesus comes back. But until then, indwelling sin remains. We are going to sin against one another. And not because we wake up in the morning intending to do so. I don't wake up in the morning and go, Christopher, I'm going to get him today. Robert, it's your time today. I'm going to offend you. No, never intend to. But such is the nature of indwelling sin. And when that happens, what are we going to do? We're going to forgive. How? By considering what we've been forgiven of, by believing in God, and then bearing the fruit of forgiveness. And when you find it difficult to forgive others, what that reveals is that you are not familiar with how much you have been forgiven of. It means that you assume your sin, your sins against me. When I struggle to forgive, I'm assuming your sins against me are greater than my sins against God. And in Christ, God has forgiven me of all my sins. If we rightly understand the gospel, we will be a forgiving people. No matter what the offense. So even ask yourself right now, where do you need to apply both of these? Where do you need to ask the Lord to remove obstacles to fruitfulness? In both prayer and forgiveness. Now, I'm going to try and move through this last point, but I don't want to move too quickly because this is where it really comes to a head. This is the third point. This is where the passage ultimately comes to a question. Does Jesus have the authority to do all this? Does he have the authority to come into the temple, cleanse it, and then declare himself to be the the new center of God's purposes? Does he have the authority to say, have faith in God, and you're looking at the object of the faith that I'm directing you to? Does he have the authority? Well, that's what this is all about. So third point, Jesus' authority makes sense of this whole passage. Two scenes, chapter 11, verses 26 through 33, and then chapter 12, verse 35 through 37. Both on the same day, both essentially in the same place in the temple, just a few minutes separated. They both deal with the same question. Does Jesus have the authority? And what makes these two passages different are the audience. His first audience is the scribes. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the three groups that comprise the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest governing body in Israel. It is the highest court in Judaism as well. The Sanhedrin is the body who condemns Jesus to go before Pilate, which leads to his crucifixion. So these guys come to Jesus And in verse 28, they said, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, asking the source of Jesus' authority, this is a legitimate question. They they have every right to ask this question, and they should ask this question. But the motive was sinister. They were seeking a way to destroy him. Again, read this in context. What Jesus had done in the temple challenged their authority. 
It had disrupted the economy of Jerusalem. And they're seeking a way to destroy him. But, and I'll be brief here. Oh man, got to be brief here. Jesus' reply is brilliant. It reveals the insincerity of their question. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question in response to your question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And the answer to his question is his answer to their question. And he only gives two options. He says, was baptism from John, was the authority for that from from heaven or from man? And if they give the right answer to his question, they will have the answer to their own question. So Jesus pushes it to them. He says, I'll tell you, but you've got to admit it. And their assessment of John and his baptism was their assessment of Jesus' own authority. So this is a simple question he asks them. And it places them in between a rock and a hard place because verse 32, they say, oh. Or verse 31, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why then did you not believe him? But should we say from man? If we say from man, John was, was hugely popular. The, the, the crowd will attack us and we will fall out of favor. <laughs> Listen, the right answer for them would have been to bow to the authority of Jesus in that very moment. That's what they should have done. But instead, their answer is a pathetic lie. They come together, they huddle together, and then they break their huddle and they go to Jesus and they say, <coughs> we have our answer, we don't know. They feign ignorance to get themselves out of a sticky situation. And so before this audience, Jesus doesn't dignify their question. And he says, well, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you because I know your motive. But now fast forward, later in the day, He's in front of a more sincere audience, a bigger audience. He's more public at this point. Verse 35, he's now in the temple. He's no longer in the portico. He's in the temple. And he's got an audience who's really wanting to to listen to him. And he effectively answers the same question. And it's in these verses that Jesus puts the question about his authority to rest, and he does so by quoting Psalm 110, which, mind you, Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. It's quoted 37 times. So you better believe people knew Psalm 110. You better believe people had a uniform understanding of what Psalm 110 meant. Jesus asks then, how can the scribes, the religious leaders, and the highest teachers in Israel say that the Christ is the son of David? That's what he asks. How can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? The the common agreement in Israel is that the Messiah would come from the line of David and be a king like David greater than David, but not by much. So such a Messiah would have tremendous authority, but certainly not the authority to change, much less do away with the temple entirely. 
And the scribes and the chief priests and the elders were challenging that. They were saying like, hey, even if you are the, the, the Messiah, which you're not, you can't do this. But Jesus says, David himself, look, look at verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The first Lord, everybody agreed and knew, referred to God. That's Yahweh. The second Lord, Adonai, everybody agreed and knew, was the Messiah. This was a prophetic reference to the coming Messiah. So effectively, David is saying, God said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. James Edwards explains, if David, who was the author of this psalm, said, God said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies, my, your enemies under your feet, then the Messiah is obviously much superior to David and not merely a descendant as Judaism popularly held. And so Jesus says in verse 37, David himself calls him his Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus' point, the Messiah is not David's son. The Messiah is God's son. And you're looking at him. His authority is the greatest possible authority. I am the Messiah. Come not with David's authority, but with God's authority. And listen, we have seen Jesus' authority demonstrated in Mark over and over and over, haven't we? In 12 chapters, we've seen his authority over human suffering. His authority to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to, to give hearing to the deaf. We've seen Jesus' authority over creation and nature itself. His authority to calm the seas. His authority to walk on water. His authority to, to multiply the, the loaves and the fish. We have seen Jesus' authority over spiritual powers. His authority to bind the strong man. To redefine the purpose of the Sabbath. To declare himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. We, we have seen him demonstrate his authority through cursing a fig tree. His authority by cleansing and declaring the end of the temple. We've even seen him demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. And this is the kind of authority that Jesus has. This is a transcendent authority. This is an authority directly from God, but it is a good authority. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2, he says, and you who have believed in him, who have answered that call to believe in God, you who have believed in, in him, have been filled in him, who is the head of all, who is the head of all rule and the head of all authority. You've been filled in him who is the head of all authority. And what kind of authority does he have? He continues in verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made together with 
Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus demonstrated His authority nowhere more clearly, nowhere more poignantly, nowhere more powerfully than He did at the cross. Where, he's, where he expressed his authority over sin and Satan and through his resurrection, his authority even over death itself. There is nothing that is not underneath his authority. Jesus' authority is good news to those who submit to it. Jesus' authority is good news to the Gentiles, you and me, friends. Jesus' authority is good news to those seeking atonement, not from the temple, but from Him. It is good news from those who, for those who trust God. It is good news to those who need fruitfulness. Listen, the authority of the temple and its leaders had become a weight of guilt, a perversion. That authority had become a charade and even a source of tyranny. But Jesus', Jesus authority is, a, is an authority of grace. But listen, and there's a warning in this, to all people and belief systems and regimes who do not submit to his authority, he's bringing them to an end. They will experience his judgment. So, let me ask you some questions really think about these, apply these to your life. Where might you need to submit to Him and His authority today? Where might you be resisting His authority in your life? How are you rebelling against His authority? Friends, submit to His authority to define and govern human sexuality. His authority to define your priorities in your life. His authority to govern the words that you say. His authority to govern the thoughts that you think. His authority to govern the decisions you make. Is there anywhere where maybe you're not willfully rejecting His authority, but you're willfully ignoring His authority, feigning ignorance like the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and going, oh, I've, I've got... I, I, I didn't know that you would, had said that. All those things where you silently in the, in the comfort of your own privacy or in the, in the privacy of your own mind fall out of submission to His authority, acting like His authority is not really even there. Your application for today However you answered any of the above questions and continue to ask those questions, however you answered those questions, submit to His authority. Submit to His good and gracious authority. Submit to the authority of the Son of God and you will be glad. Would you pray with me?